Okay, so um, you guys probably know this about me. I'm totally a Gentle and Lily fangirl, so that's why you keep getting copies of Gentle and Lily whenever I do these things. Um, so I'm gonna start with just quoting the introduction from Gentle and Lily. And this is what Dane Ortland says whenever he's addressing the people who are reading his book. This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up this bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us but suspects we have deeply disappointed him. We've told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment. In other words, for normal Christians. In short, it's for sinners and sufferers. In the same way, justification is for those of us who are sinners and sufferers. Those of us like you and me. Amen? So I just have two goals today. We're going to try to define justification, and then we're going to try to illustrate justification, and that's it. So point one is just going to be defining justification. And I'm going to define it like this. Justification is God's declaration that sinners are forgiven and found as obedient to the law on the basis of the finished work of Christ by faith. I'll say it again. God's declaration that sinners are forgiven and found as obedient to the law on the basis of the finished work of Christ by faith. So to help us remember, I don't know if you caught it, but I'm doing kind of an F thing. There's an F alliteration there. So we've got forgiven, found as obedient by the finished work of Christ by faith. Forgiven, found, finished faith. And I want to take a minute here and point out that where I'm saying found, I don't mean like something was lost and you found it. I'm using it as a synonym of like declared or reckoned. So found as obedient, declared as obedient, reckoned as obedient. I'm just using the F to help us remember the, def the definition. So first we're going to look at forgiven and found as obedient. And it's vital that we understand both of these pieces. Justification is God's declaration that sinners are forgiven and found as obedient to the law. We are not only forgiven of sin debt, but we're also found as righteous. We are found as those who have followed the law perfectly. And we understand best with stories, so I'm going to tell one that maybe you have read this week too. Maybe. I was reading this week about a 17-year-old boy who was from an affluent family, and he didn't have any unmet needs. He was very favored. After a series of providential events, this teenage boy found himself in the bottom of a hole in the ground. There was no way out, no ladder, no one helping him. The hole was really deep, and he could not claw his way out. He was helpless to save himself, but he was literally trapped underground. As I read this story, I thought about how this pit is symbolic of sin and death. It's like a grave. So I've drawn this to help us kind of see. So this is like the pit of sin and death. It might be helpful to draw that. I don't know if you're a picture person like me. Okay, so he couldn't save himself. He couldn't get out of the pit. He was desperate for someone to care enough to help him out. So in our spiritual need, we can't help ourselves. And if the pit is representative of a grave we've earned through our sin, we desperately need someone to forgive it. 
So I think it's worth just stopping and feeling the weight of this kind of situation. Just picture yourself trapped in a pit underground. Can you imagine how much panic you would feel? Can you imagine how your heart rate would be elevating? Can you imagine how you might start shaking and the longer it goes on and on and no one's coming, how you're gonna feel more and more hopeless? That's the kind of situation we're in with sin. We are in a pit that we cannot get out of. So this is the first part of our definition. When we sin, we break God's perfect law and we are indebted to him. We are in a pit underground. We should think of it like a grave. We cannot claw our way out of death and our absolute only hope is that God would be merciful to us. We are desperate to look up and see him standing at the top of the pit, squatting down with unbreakable arms and miraculously hoisting us out. Because of the gospel, we have been hoisted out of the grave of sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And forgiveness is for those of us who understand the death sentence that we have accrued through sin. It's for those of us who are desperately counting on mercy. John Calvin, this is like an Emily Cockrell shout out. She's not even here. John Calvin says that there is no honoring God without acknowledging his mercy. So that's what we're doing right here. We're acknowledging his mercy. He's pulling us out of the pit. In Christ, God has been merciful to us. It's as if he's pulled us out of the grave and he's set our feet back on level ground. And that's our first part of justification. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness is taking care of our hole in the ground problem. And when our sin is forgiven, we're no longer under the ground. We are on the ground. So it's my second little guy here. On the ground. Our feet are firmly planted. Our sin problem has been forgiven and we're back to just a neutral place of standing on planet Earth. Okay, so back to our story. Does anybody realize what the story is already? No, okay. So back to our story. The teenage boy was rescued from the pit. His life took a lot of twists and turns, and it's a really long story, but we're gonna just skip to the end so that you're not here all day. And by the time he's 30, the Lord had done some miraculous, unheard of things in his life. And now, you're gonna know what I'm talking about. Now he's living in the king's quarters. In fact, He's been given so much authority that he's the second in command in the entire country. He's been given a prestigious position over all the agriculture in the entire country. And this speaks to the second part of our definition, found or reckoned as obedient to the law. So forgiveness of sin would have been enough to just make us eternally grateful to God. However, he does not stop by just pulling us out of our sin pit and leaving us on neutral soil. He promotes us. He treats us as if we'd never sinned. We're treated as completely righteous sons or daughters. We're called a royal priesthood, a holy people, belonging to God. And that is not the language of someone who's pulled from a hole and then just left alone to figure it out for the rest of their lives. We are adopted into his royal family. We are given meaningful kingdom work to do. We are not viewed as sinful children trapped in a dirty pit. We are viewed as beloved, adopted children, the inheritance of the Lord. We are found obedient to the law. We're treated as if we'd never sinned. And this inheritance is not something that a sinner should expect. Okay, so whose story did I just recap? Joseph, yeah. It was the story of Joseph. Hopefully, though, in a way that helped us to see it with new eyes. Because just like Joseph, we've been pulled from condemnation to glorification. And I'm not going to nerd out any more on Joseph, but there's a lot more there. If you want to think more about that, like, look at his clothing, like his 
I'll let you, I'll let you nerd out about that later. So despite our disobedience, we've been found as obedient and treated as such. John Stott says that we have been ennobled, which just means that we've been made noble. We've been made into royals. As those who have been ennobled, we have the benefits of holiness in this life and eternal life to come. So if you'd never heard the gospel before, and this was your first time hearing these things, you would be asking a big question right now. After I told you, you had been forgiven, you've been pulled out of the pit, and you've been found as obedient, you've been given eternal life, the question that you'd be asking is, how? How is that possible? So how do we make the leap from dead in a pit of sin to not only forgiven, but also found as obedient? Well, I'm so glad you guys asked that question. This brings us to our third and fourth Fs. So we are forgiven and found as obedient by the finished work of Christ by faith. What is that finished work? Great question. The finished work of justification is a mutual imputation or a mutual exchange. Just said very simply, it's a gr the greatest swap in the history of the world. Beaky and Smalley say that justification is an exchange of sin and righteousness. In justification, an exchange of sin and righteousness is in view. The people's sins are placed on him so that he suffers for them, and his righteousness is counted to them so that they share in his vindication. So if you want to jot down a um, verse beside this one, beside the finished part, Romans 5.21 is a good one. Romans 5.21 says it like this. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ made an exchange with us, his beloved. He gave us his righteousness and took our sin. And by that, I don't mean that he sinned, but that he, the perfect one, was counted as a sinner so that we, the disobedient ones, could be counted as both passively and actively obedient. He exchanged his heaven for our pit. He went to the grave so that we could have his eternal heavenly home. So I'm going to hit you with another Dane Orland quote. He says it like this, the Bible does not teach that you are to get out of your pain and get into God the way that some other world religions might. The Bible teaches that God comes out of heaven and into your pain. God comes to us in our pain. The phrase, gracious is the Lord, went from abstract truth to concrete reality in the incarnation. Then God really came out of heaven into our pain. Could he have possibly given us more reason to trust and love him? So listen to this exchange illustrated with sections from Isaiah 53. In our pit of sin and death, we were sick. He bore our sickness. We were in pain. He carried our pains. We were rebellious and had earned the punishment of piercing and crushing. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment was on him. We have wandered like sheep. We have been distracted. We have been easily swayed to turn away. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of the rebellion of his people. The creator and sustainer of life was assigned a grave, a grave that should have been mine and it should have been yours. The righteous servant justified many when Christ hung on the cross for my disobedience and pride and your rebellion and distrust, he said, it is finished. 
the debt of our sin was paid in full. Justification is only possible through the finished work of Christ. And that brings us to our last F. This one, I picture the emoji, you know the handshaking one all the young people use? Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) The finished work of Christ and our faith to believe it go hand in hand like a handshake. If this, all this justification work is finished in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on our behalves, then there is no more work to do. So we don't get to be teammates with Jesus on this. It's not like we're passing a basketball back and forth, and at the very end, one of us dunks it. No, it's more like Jesus scores every single point of a basketball game, and we are spectators watching it happen, and all we're doing is nodding and saying, yes, I believe Jesus scored every point. We've contributed absolutely nothing. And that is our role, faith. Faith is believing what God says is true. Beaky and Smalley explain the role of faith in justification like this. Though justification is decreed in eternity and accomplished by Christ in history and proclaimed in the gospel through the ages, it is applied and actualized only when a person is regenerated and trusts in Christ alone for salvation. Paul's repeated refrain is that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to jot a scripture down next to faith in your notes, Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16 says, A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So a few little sub-points underneath this heading. Um, It's worth noting here that we have to be really careful not to see faith itself as a work. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we can... When we think about salvation, we can say, of course, I know I can't earn God's favor. I know that I've broken the law, but I bet I can have really strong faith, and that faith can save me. And that's nothing more than using faith as a form of workspace righteousness. And this is maybe the most important thing I'm going to say about faith. Faith is never the ground of our justification. Faith always looks outside of itself for the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I'll say that again. Faith is never the ground of our justification. Faith always looks outside of itself for the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Wrongly seeing faith as a work that I have to complete is the source of many rededications, even within our own denomination. And we've probably heard things like this, or maybe we've said things like this before, like, I didn't feel it enough, or my faith wasn't strong enough. And that places our salvation, our justification, on the strength of our own faith. But the good news here is, if any of you are anything like me, and I bet that you are, and you can be prone to having weak faith, this is the encouragement. Justifying faith can be weak and full of imperfections, but it rests in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Justifying faith may be weak and full of imperfections, but it rests in the perfect righteousness of Christ. All right, actually, I did have a joke up next, so I'm glad it's being recorded. Um, Okay, here we go. Hold on. We've got a fully formulated foundational foothold on forgiven, found as obedient, finished by Christ, faith-filled justification. Woo! Don't write any of that down. Okay. The last thing that I do want to note in this section is that justification is not the same thing as sanctification. Um, Although we've teased out the different parts of the definition, it's not a process. It's an instantaneous legal act of God. We should think of it as a one-time thing. You're either justified before God or you're not. 
and there's nothing in between. I've included a little chart in your notes, I think, I think it's in your notes, yeah, um, that draws out the difference between justification and sanctification. And you should come back next month and hear Karen talk more about sanctification. But really quick, while we're thinking about that, I want us to have like a little history minute, like coming close, we're gonna have a history minute here. And we're gonna talk about how justification is vital for us to understand because it's the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Luther calls it the hinge on which all Christian religion turns. So I wrote this down just, maybe it's easier to understand to see it this way, but Catholicism taught that you must be fully sanctified and then be justified and then be glorified. And this is a workspace righteousness, like what we were just talking about. In Christianity, though, you're justified and then sanctified and then glorified. And every other religion is going to teach some form of make yourself a better person before you come to God. But Christianity teaches that Christ is perfect on our behalves. We trust in that divine swap that I was just talking about. His righteousness given to us. We are justified first by his perfect righteousness, and then we walk in sanctification until we reach glory. So if you're interested in that, there's, there's that right there. So all of this gets us to the point of asking the question, who is this for? Who needs justification? I'm going to look quickly over Romans 3, 11 through 18 to answer that question. So if you want to flip over in your Bible, Romans 3, 11 through 18. Romans 3, 11 through 18 is a relatable list of people who cannot justify themselves. And I'm just going to take a sample of the passage and point out that justification is for those of us who are not righteous. It's for those of us who do not seek God. Those of us who have turned away. Those of us who have not done what is good. Those of us who are full of deceptive words and bitterness. Those who are ruined and wretched those who haven't chosen the path of peace, those of us who have absolutely no hope of appealing to a perfect law. We cannot appeal to this law because it's a law that we've broken. Romans 3.20, you might jot that down, it says it clearly. No one will be justified in, this, in his sight by works of the law. We simply cannot be justified by a law that we haven't kept. So, one time in college, I was driving back to campus after a visit home for the weekend, and something that I've always really enjoyed doing when I'm in the car by myself is listening to really loud music. On this particular drive, my music must have been getting louder and louder because my foot was getting heavier and heavier, and before I knew it, I was receiving a speeding ticket for doing a 103 in a 70 mile per hour zone. And in case you didn't know, 30 over the speed limit is a felony charge. So, I know, when I received my ticket from a very disgruntled police officer, I knew I was guilty as charged. The speedometer in my car was working, and in that moment, it would have done me no good to appeal to the law for righteousness. I had broken the law. The law could not help me, and in fact, the law was what was going to call me condemned. And the only hope I had for not having a permanent felony charge on my record was that someone would intercede on my behalf someone did. The dean of my university wrote a letter for me to hand to the judge on my court date, 
and the letter explained that I was a good student, I was involved on campus, I was held in high regard. But what if I had done nothing good at all to plead to the judge? What if I hadn't just broken the speed limit, but what if I'd also failed every course? What if I'd vandalized my school? What if I'd been known for bullying underclassmen? What if I were despised and rejected at my university? And what if the letter that I handed the judge that day had listed all of those things instead? And what if after handing him that letter, both the judge and I knew without a doubt that I was not only guilty of the high-speed chase, but also every other offense? But what if, what if the dean from my college had included a page two to his letter? And on page two, he'd promised to personally cover every expense I'd accrued. What if he'd promised to personally scrub every bit of vandalism? What if he'd promised to pay every fine? And in fact, that he'd be willing to have my felony charge put on his record. Imagine that the judge declared that his paying my debt was acceptable and that I was no longer responsible for any of it. But let's take this one step further. What if, because of the way my dean had taken every penalty I'd accrued, righted every wrong, paid every fine, what if because of his complete work of forgiveness, the judge looked on me as a perfect citizen? And what if because of my new status as perfect citizen who'd never broken any laws, he decided to adopt me so that I could inherit all he had? Obviously, that's a far-fetched thing to imagine for a human being to do for another human being. But that's just a stab at an illustration of what's been done for us in Christ. Our justification means that our debt is paid and we've been given an inheritance. If we've sinned at all, and each one of us has, we've broken the entire law of perfect holiness. We are guilty over and over and over. And justification is so much more than just saying, just as if I'd never sinned. It's a payment in full of our sin debt and a new legal standing as a child of God. With this new identity comes peace of conscience, communion with God, liberty to confess sins and seek God's fatherly forgiveness and the gift of eternal life and blessing. So that's all of our first point, just defining justification. So now we're gonna move on to illustrating justification. This is point two. What does it look like? Okay, I recognize a lot of you. I mean, a lot of you come every single week and if you're like me and you've been in church most of your life or a really long time, you probably have heard the word justification before and you probably even came in here today with a pretty functional definition, although I doubt any of you had the F thing going on. But there's something uniquely tricky about a longtime Christian in our context. We can hear and hear and hear doctrinal truths and we can faithfully catalog them in the Rolodex of our minds, but sometimes doctrine stops there. It's just an intellectual muscle flex and our real lives don't really reflect the fact that we believe these things to be true. It feels like truth can camp out a long time in our heads and then not really ever make it down to our hearts and hands. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to cause these truths to seep into our regular lives. So how do we know if we understand justification in a way that translates into real life? 
maybe the scarier version of this question and maybe the one you want to jot down is how are we prone to live in ways that neglect the doctrine of justification? How am I prone to live in ways that neglect the doctrine of justification? Luckily and per usual, these are not unique questions or challenges for us as 21st century Western Christians. Luke plays out story after story of those that get it in action and those that may intellectually understand parts of it but haven't connected the dots in real life. So the first passage I want to look at is Luke 15. And Luke 15 is kind of like a gentle and lily thing for me. I'm probably just going to talk about it every time. Um, this is the prodigal son. So while you're flipping over to Luke 15, I'll give a quick recap. Um, the story of the prodigal son begins with a selfish son demanding his inheritance from his father. And after receiving it, the Bible says that he squandered his estate in foolish living. He felt as if he'd not only squandered his estate, but that he'd squandered his father's love for him, as if he'd squandered his sonship. He didn't realize that sonship is not something that can be earned or squandered. Sonship, or in our cases, daughtership, is a direct result of being justified. So in this life, no matter how rocky our relationships, we will always be the biological daughters of our biological mother and father. We cannot change our DNA. We cannot earn or lose the fact that our biological parents are our biological parents. And in the heavenly realm, the adoption we receive because of justification is just as binding. We do not earn or lose our status as daughters. And if you cannot earn justification, you cannot lose it. Therefore, we cannot earn or lose the benefit. The prodigal son assumed that his foolishness had cost him his place in the family. So I'm going to read Luke 15, 17 through 20a, starting in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. The contrast in this story is, of course, the older brother. And in contrast to his brother, we don't assume that he thinks he's in jeopardy of losing his status as son. Where the younger brother is convinced that he's no longer worthy to be called a son, the older brother is convinced that he deserves to be a son. He thinks he has earned the status. Let's look at the entitlement language in 1529. Look, I have been slaving for many years. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The older brother lists the reasons why he has earned his family place. He has been slaving for many years. He has never disobeyed. He has never tapped into the family wealth for a good time. He has never even had a low-key hang with his friends. He is so much more worthy of his standing in the family that he won't even use the word brother. And if we could put these two brothers beside each other and have them summarize this story in one sentence, maybe it would go like this. Maybe the younger brother would say, I thought I'd lost my sonship. And maybe the older brother would say, I thought I'd earned my sonship. Which sounds a lot like, I thought I'd lost my justification. 
I thought I'd earned my justification. Maybe even in this room, we could have two sides. Maybe some of us would scan the last year and note the way that we have used sharp tones with our kids or the way that we've slandered our friends or how we have lacked time in prayer or how we don't really have joy in the word. And if we're honest, we might say something like, I've probably lost some of my good standing before God. Said in a more succinct way, I've probably lost some of my justification. Or maybe some of us have been good Christian ladies as long as we can remember. We are servant-hearted. We are prayer warriors. We fly into church with our angel wings. We may not say it out loud, but deep in there, we believe it. We've earned some good standing with God. More succinctly said, I have earned my justification. Now, another noteworthy thing about this story is that the father never stops calling either one of those brothers his son. The younger brother is no less his son by his bad works, and the older brother is no more his son by his good works. Both of them have an unshakable status as son. So it is with us. If we are justified by the finished work of Christ before God the Father, we have an unshakable status as daughter. Tim Keller says that we are liable to either let our badness get in the way or let our goodness get in the way of understanding this doctrine. And maybe you're thinking, this is the prodigal son. I've heard this story a million times. It's a great story about two sons and a merciful dad. But how does that really translate to me as a woman here at UBC today? Here are a few diagnostic questions you could ask yourself. And I think most of these are on the back, but you can jot a couple of these down. Am I prone to comparison? Do I find myself comparing the way that I think about things like education, politics, holidays, etc., with other women? Do I do this in subtle or even unspoken ways? How is this revealing that at my core, I really do want to justify myself before God? Why do I want to appear as better in any of these realms? In what ways do I echo the older brother to my heavenly father when I say, look, I have been fill in the blank, or I have never fill in the blank. Or maybe you fall on the other side. Maybe you're like the younger brother. Maybe you're prone to spiritual discouragement. Maybe you could ask yourself things like, do I find myself using grit in my faith? Do I create self-imposed rules that God never made in order to try to please him? In what ways do I approach God like the younger brother in self-deprecation? In what ways am I saying, I'm not good enough to be your daughter? Remember, justification is an instantaneous work of God. It's not earned or lost. We are not justified, or we are justified, when we are justified as our status as heavenly daughters cannot be changed. So we pray, Holy Spirit, help us stop trying to earn right standing with you. Help us not self-deprecate. Give us deep security in our justification. Give us deep security in our justification. The next story we're going to look at is a few chapters beyond where we are now. Turn over to Luke 18. In the last story, we explored our temptation to try to earn right standing with God or fear losing right standing with God. 
But in this story, just three chapters after the prodigal son, Jesus doubles down on justification. So I'm going to start in Luke 18, 9 through 14. So the funny, this is not, it's like funny, but not funny, you know. Um, in verse 8, it says that this story is for some who have trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Like, what an introduction to a story. All of us, right? So let's read it. We're going to start in verse 10. This is Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the last story we explored, we had two brothers who thought, one who thought he'd, he'd lost his standing as son and one who thought he'd earned his standing as son. Interestingly, the last recorded interaction that the father has with both of those sons is an invitation to a restored relationship. So let's think about this. The father threw his arms around his rebellious son. He kissed him. He clothed him with the best robe. He put the ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet. He killed the fattened calf for him. But we never read of the younger son's response. Similarly, at the end of the story, the father pleads with the older son, reminding him that all he has is his. Yet we never know how the older son responds. Neither one of them have any more lines in that parable. And we also remember from Luke 15, back whenever we were talking about the parable, of the prodigal son, the beginning of Luke 15 says that the groups gathered around Jesus were tax collectors and Pharisees. The story of the prodigal son is addressed to those two groups. It was Jesus's intent for his audience to identify with one of those brothers. So now skipping back to where we are now, Luke 18. Interestingly, the characters in Luke 18, 9 through 14 that we just read are a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee and the tax collector both have lines of response to God in this story. It's almost like Jesus is revisiting the idea of two types of people, and in this story, he lets their prayers play out. The Pharisee in this story seems eerily similar to the older brother from Luke 15, and we can all hear those echoes right away. Remember how the older brother said, I have been, I have never, and the Pharisee said, I'm not like. The comparison game is playing out in real time. He says, I'm not like other people. Other people are greedy. Other people are unrighteous. Other people are adulterers. Other people are tax collectors. He moves from the broad comparisons to the person standing right beside him. And he might as well have just said his name. He was trying to exalt himself. He was trying to push his arms into the sleeves of the royal robe, trying to poke his finger in the royal ring, trying to slide his feet into the royal sandals. He was trying to force a hug and a kiss of unconditional love from his heavenly father, trying to persuade him to kill the fattened calf. For him, he exalted himself. And the result is clear in verse 14. Verse 14 says, everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled. Conversely, we have the tax collector, a man who has exploited relationships for money, who has gained wealth at the expense of those he should have been faithful to. Does that remind you of any characters we've met before? Earlier, when we talked about how the younger son said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, I didn't highlight this, but the line before that, he said that he has, he said that he was a sinner. He proclaimed himself as one who had sinned against heaven and sinned against his father. So now listen to what the tax collector said. God have mercy on me, a sinner. The Bible says that this one went down to his house. There's our word, justified. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 14. What does it mean to be exalted? We've already talked about it, remember? It means to be ennobled. It means to be found as obedient to the law. It means to be treated like we are royal sons or daughters. So maybe a few application questions for you as you think about this story is, how quickly do you approach God in humility, remembering that the humble will be exalted? How often do you appeal only to the mercy of God? How can you incorporate this kind of posture into your prayers? And in what ways are you tempted to exalt yourself now? Are you willing to be humbled here for the sake of being exalted later? Or are you exalting yourself here at the expense of being humbled later? Now we're going to move to our last little section from Luke. Hang in there. This is our last one. We're going to look just a few verses beyond where we are now. Stay in Luke 18. We're going to go to Luke 18, 18 through 23. And this one's going to be brief, but this is the most extreme. This is the most life or death, the most all-encompassing. So this is the rich young ruler. Whenever he approaches Jesus, he asks him how to get eternal life. In other words, how could he be justified before God? This man has everything in this life. The Bible tells us that he's wealthy and that he is a self-proclaimed, very moral man, having kept the commandments. Jesus challenges this man who has everything to leave everything and choose him instead. Jesus knows that the man that has everything in this life but does not have him is not justified before the Father. This man who has everything has nothing. So with that in mind, flip over to Luke 23. Luke 23, 40 through 43. We meet a man who has nothing. This man is hanging on a cross beside our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is receiving a punishment that he justly deserves. He is breaths away from death. He is a condemned criminal. He has no record of morality. He has no money. He has no allies, except for one. He admits his fault and asks Jesus to remember him, and Jesus does. The man who has nothing but death ahead of him has gained everything because he has gained Christ. So let's try to make this personal. In what ways do we try to appeal to our own morality? 
In what ways do we expect God to give us what we want because we've done the right things on our side? The Bible tells us the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus sad, and honestly, he was probably mad because Jesus didn't grant him eternal life because of his wealth or morality. Do we ever approach God in this way? Are we ever frustrated because our morality hasn't resulted in us getting the circumstantial changes that we wanted? Are you noticing the repeated theme from Luke, the repeated theme of the entire Bible? We cannot approach God with any ounce of self-justification. It doesn't exist. We can't be more enough. We can't be wealthy enough. We can't be at church enough. We can't be good Christian women enough. We can't parent well enough. We can't be good enough friends or spouses. The only people who are justified are those who come in humility. Justification is for those of us who recognize our desperate need. Those of us who say, I have sinned against my neighbor and I have sinned against God. Those of us who refuse to appeal to comparison to others or good deeds done. Those of us who see ourselves as children in a pit crying out for mercy. Those of us who understand ourselves to be like that thief on the cross, knowing our guilt but appealing to King Jesus. God justifies the wicked who trust in his son. We who are justified are forgiven of our sin. We are found as obedient to the law by the finished work of Christ, by faith. So in conclusion, I want to read this from the epistle um, to Diognetus. When our unrighteousness was fulfilled and it had been made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment and death, were to be expected, then the season arrived during which God had decided to reveal at last his goodness and power. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Let's pray.